that was the opening music to It Came from Outer Space, which is the first movie in our double feature today. The second movie is Them, with an exclamation point. And we thought we would cover It Came from Outer Space first, because it was released first. It was released in 1953. Yes, I stood in line at the movie theater to see it on May 28th, 1953. I remember it clearly. So you, how old you, you would have been then? Like uh, I would have been uh, 12, 11, 12. 11, 11. 11. Yeah. So that was, that's pretty young for this movie at the time. I, uh, it's got some pretty good jump scares in it. I think this was before they had much of a rating system. Uh, you know, like now it would have been, I suppose right now to be rated PG-13, huh? Yeah, but on my DVD copy, it's rated G. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that one. I'd probably uh, go well, PG thirteen. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, anyhow, uh, you're listening to you're listening to classic movie reviews, and you can find us on the internet at classicmoviereviews.net or in iTunes. Just search for classic movie reviews. Or in Facebook, you can also find us just by searching for Classic Movie Reviews. And you might notice our audio quality is a lot better this time. And it's only taken us 93 episodes to really figure this out. So we're, we're slow learners, but we're getting there. <laughs> well, it's also, <laughs> it's also the ever-changing technology. Right. That's true. <laughs> so we are... <laughs> so I'm Matt Johnson, and I'm recording from the Seattle area today where we have rain again, which we desperately need because we've been having a lot of forest fires. Boy, that's uh, a blessing. I'm in, uh, this is Bob Johnson. I'm in uh, Los Angeles where we're headed into some uh, cloudy and possibly rainy weather also. So uh, fall has arrived in the Southland. For sure. So uh, it came from outer space. Uh, I remember when you and I and Ben went to see this in Chicago in 3D as a double feature with it came from a, a, a creature from the Black Lagoon and how much fun that was uh, in this old theater up by DePaul University. That seems like a long time ago, only because it yes. was. Yeah, it was a while ago. I still remember that trip, though. That was so so fun. And uh, I've since learned that It Came From Outer Space was Universal's first attempt at a 3D movie. And then they were so successful with that, they said, okay, we've got to make another one. And that's where they decided to make It Came From the Black Lagoon, also in 3D. And both of those movies are available on Blu-ray in 3D if you have a 3D Blu-ray player and TV that's capable of displaying that. And I gotta say, they did an outstanding job of restoring both of those movies. In fact, in, it came from outer space looks so good, it almost looks like it was shot on digital. Like They, they cleaned it up so much that wow. it, it almost loses some of its uh, film quality. I don't know. It's, it's really well done, though. The uh, director for both of those, Jack Arnold, <clears throat> did a lot of lot of uh, science fiction movies, uh, the two that we've mentioned. Plus, he did The Incredible Shrinking Man from 1957, which is another classic. And then a favorite of mine from 1959, The Mouse That Roared with Peter Sellers. And just a quick synopsis of that one, Peter Sellers, Sellers is the uh, monarch of a country 
that wants to declare war against the U.S. so that that country would lose and then receive foreign aid. It's really funny. It really oh, weird. <laughs> so Mr. Arnold had a long, a long career over a long time, mostly in science fiction. I love that movie, The Incredible Shrinking Man. That's a good one. That was on a, about a month and a half ago, and I watched it again. And the special effects from 1957, especially when that spider is going after him in the basement, seem so realistic to me. And it was all done, you know, just manually by people setting that up and doing it. This movie stars Richard Carlson, who also starred in It Came from the Black Lagoon. Yes, he he's a wonderful, uh, wonderful actor. Uh, I I looked I, because I enjoy his work so much. I looked up some of his background. He was a graduate of the University of Minnesota, a member of Phi Beta Kappa, and he had a cum laude with honors. So he did. He had he had a very bright educational background. Have you ever seen him in the movie King Solomon's Mines from 1950? No, uh, it's a it's a wonderful movie. That might be another one that we want to review. Deborah, let's see. De- I want to say Deborah Carr plays his sister, and Stuart Granger is the hero. Really, really a fine movie. That sounds like a that'd be a fun one to watch. I think Barbara Rush. This was kind of a newcomer. She was a newcomer to film at this time, and she went on to have a long and productive career, and still is living here in the L.A. area. She did The Young Lions in 1958 and a really good Paul Newman movie called Ombre in 1967. Yeah, she was really good in the movie, and I thought, um, you know, they had a nice chemistry between the two of them. Um, I, and I liked I liked Russell Johnson, too. Like, I, I he, you know, at this time, he wasn't known as the professor from Gilligan's Island, but... The Professor and Mary Ann, here on Gilligan's I think after that show, he's always going to be known as the professor. Oh. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I forgot that. <laughs> he's, a, he's a member of the telephone company crew, right? Yeah, he's one of the telephone yeah. crew members. Yeah. And going back to, to uh, Richard Carlson for a minute, I always get him mixed up with Hugh Marlowe. Remember, Hugh Marlowe also did a lot of science fiction movies and was almost exactly the same age as Richard Carlson. Uh, I think Hugh was in... Uh, uh, the day the Earth stood still. Oh yeah, he was kind of the suitor to the to the main uh, women character, and he turns out to be kind of a bad guy. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's an interesting um, character that he plays because he's kind of a science. He's a scientist who also is kind of an action hero in the movie. I, I mean, not like an action hero in today's terms, but for the time, and that goes back to a lot of like writing in the late 1800s and early 1900s where they would have sort of the scientist explorer, you know? Yes. And I felt like that I felt like that was the archetype for his character. Mr. Carlson uh, is John Putnam and he was an amateur astronomer yeah. living out in the desert. Like he wanted to get away from the city and he really did get away from the city. He was really out in the middle of nowhere. Just imagine that you're out on your back patio having a barbecue in this gigantic thing comes flying through the sky that would get my attention i know that i tell you yeah that was that was cool how they uh shot that because the crater when they kind of go out to the next morning to explore and f- see what that was in the helicopter it really looks like a, a life-size crater that they've 
found out there in the desert. They, I thought the special effects for that were, were well done. I'm trying to find out if they actually went on location to film that because it does look... Yeah, they were on location in different towns uh, in California, out on the Mojave Desert in Victorville. So they may have found a uh, a crater and used that as the uh, signature piece for where the uh, alien spacecraft lands. Just a little background on this film also that, before I forget, it was uh, one of Universal International's big hits. I mean, it made a, a lot of money. And and I think that also led them to do some of these others like Creature from the Black Lagoon. The second Creature movie, one of the people in it is Clint Eastwood. Oh, yeah, that's right. Remember, he plays a lab tech or something like that in the second Creature. He's got a really small part yes. in that movie, yeah. That may have been yeah. his first, first movie. I don't know that. But anyway, this film is, I, I, it's, it, it holds up really well to me as I watch it again. I think so. I think... It's because they don't show the actual creatures that much, you know. I think it's they're kind of whenever they're shown, they're more in shadow or like fog, and so it leaves a little bit more to the imagination. Ex- except, I thought the, except I th- when they actually show it up for the first time, that big reveal. Yeah. 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 Well, and originally in the script, they weren't going to show the aliens at all. They weren't gonna. They, the oh. only thing that you would ever see is like that gelatinous kind of view from the aliens' perspective. But they were never gonna actually show the monster. And then they decided that no, we've got to. We've got to show the monster. What are we thinking? So they quickly uh, put together the actual creature. And I was watching the making of on the DVD, and there's no like record of how they built it or anything. They. They must have just really put it together in in a hurry. It was it was Wednesday afternoon at four o'clock, and they decided we need this for tomorrow. What are yeah, we going to do? Exactly. Yeah, right. it, it comes out pretty well. It does, and you know what I really liked about the creatures was the trail of glitter that they would leave behind, and, yeah. and the music that they would play during that. That was cool. Leave a glistening trail that soon vanishes. I enjoyed that a lot. Uh, the story uh, is pretty straightforward. Uh, Charles Drake is the unbelieving sheriff, as Matt Warren. But soon they come around to realizing that this is actually something that's happening. Because at first they uh, think that John Putnam is a crackpot. But when people start disappearing and more things happen, it's like, wow, there must be something to this. Yeah, I like that Barbara Rush's character, who is Ellen Fields, did believe John about the whole thing. And I mean, she saw the spaceship crash too so it makes sense that she would believe that something was going on she's a lovely woman and and uh really it, it she adds to the movie she has a i think a really good part in it well one of the key things one of the key uh differentiators of this movie from other movies is that the aliens don't actually want to be on earth they're not there to invade they don't want to have anything to do with the humans they're just trying to repair their ship so that they can get back on their journey where's ellen Where's Ellen? Stay where you are. Come out in the open. Come out where I can see you. No. Let me see you as you really are. What do you want? What are you doing? We are repairing our ship to leave your world. We need your help. You ask me to help you. How can I when you've kidnapped and stolen, for all I know, even murdered? We have a long way to go. By nightfall, we will have left your Earth. 
You will not see us until it is time. And I thought that was a great kind of a twist on the yes the genre. Yes, they had they had a they had to make a pit stop, and all this other stuff happens. They were probably like, "Please leave us alone." I like the way they were able to shape themselves into the human forms, but not quite. They just couldn't quite uh, exactly replicate the personalities of the people that they possessed. It's a little bit like uh, that movie uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers in that regard. Yeah, exactly, because uh, Matt, uh, Matt Warren is like, there's a point where he's freaking out and John Putnam is, is telling him, hey, just we just got to wait, just a couple hours. We just got to wait this out, and they're going to leave, and everything's going to be fine. And then one of the people that is working on the line, I think it's Joe, Joe Sawyer, uh, who plays Frank Dalen. Yes, yes. Uh, is walking across the street, and Matt Warren is like... That's the way you wanted it, right? It's got to be right. What are you doing here? I thought you were going to sweat it out at home. They paid me a visit, Matt. They took some of my clothes. Why do you suppose they do that? I don't know. Couldn't be that they've been lying to you, could it? That old mine they've been hiding in. There were three men working it. They ever tell you what happened to them? What do they want with so many of us? What are they planning, Johnny? Are they telling the truth or what? You keep throwing these questions at me. All I can do is guess. Now you're close, too. Could be any one of them. Stop working yourself up, Matt. It's hot enough without raising your blood pressure. Yeah. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and who knows? Maybe some of them stayed behind. And so there's that level of paranoia, and he's and he has that whole speech about 92 degrees and how there's been studies showing that more murders happen when it's 92 degrees outside than any other time. <laughs> Oh, I, uh, Ray Bradbury was such a wonderful writer. He could tell such wonderful stories, and you can see that in this. One thing I was just reading a few minutes ago is that the special effects for the in-flight alien spacecraft, I love this, consisted of a wire-mounted iron ball with hollowed-out windows with burning magnesium inside. That's exactly what it looks like. <laughs> that, yeah, that's awesome. It's amazing. It probably again. They, it was Tuesday at three o'clock, and they said we got to have this for tomorrow. So get busy. <laughs> uh, There's a little bit of a goof at the very beginning and the opening scene. You can see the mirror on the left hand side uh, because obviously they can't shoot this flaming iron ball coming right at the actual camera. So they filmed it uh, off of a mirror. But you can see a little bit of the mirror in oh, the in the shot. I I didn't catch that. I, I bet if we did uh, a episode on movie goofs, we'd find one in every film. Oh, for sure. I mean, like, there's just no way to catch them all. It's no matter how many times they look look at it. Well, the other thing I wanted to mention about your Ray Bradbury comment is there's some really great lines. There's one when Frank Dalen is at the top of the telephone pole and he's talking about how we haven't seen nothing, have we? No, I haven't seen anything, but I'm sure hearing things. Yeah. What kind of things? Well, I don't know. Darnest noise ever. Never heard anything like it on the wires before. Ah, you went out in the sun all morning. No, it's not the sun. Mind if I give a listen? Sure. Put him on the ladder, George. You're the boss. Here, listen. You hear it? 
Any idea what it is? I don't know. Might be somebody up that way tapping the wires or back that way listening to us like we're listening to him. I wonder who it is. I don't know. After you've been working out on the desert 15 years like I have, hear a lot of things. See a lot of things, too. Sun in the sky and, and the heat. All that sand out there with the rivers and lakes that aren't real at all. And sometimes you think that the wind gets in the wires and hums and listens and talks. Just like what we're hearing now. Still hear it? No, it's gone. Well, that's the way it is. Comes and goes. And there were there were some others too, and it was definitely like Ray Bradbury. You could tell that he had written the the script. He did, he did so many. I don't have all those in front of me right now, but um, oh, I, I guess also that in Bradbury's younger life, his father lived in Tucson, and he worked for the telephone company as a lineman. That may be where he got the idea for that for the lineman of the, from the phone company. Yeah, I wondered what they were hearing on the telephone pole lines. You know, like I, 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 I imagine it was that sound of a modem connecting back. You know, when you had to like dial into like America Online or CompuServe or something, and you'd hear that. sound of the computer connecting I, I wondered if it was something like that <laughs> <laughs> probably probably so or when you send uh you, you call the wrong number and it's a fax machine yeah that, exactly. that could same, be disturbing too i was also noticing that the music henry mancini who went on to a wonderful career was one of the composers for the uh, movie music and he was never credited for that hmm Interesting. I didn't know that. So I don't know if we need to go into more detail. The the, the uh, it turns out well in the end. Yeah, it has a good ending. I uh, I I did a rating on this one. I gave it an uh, an eight on our scale of one to ten. Uh, I just you know I think it's really above far above average. It's just not quite double indemnity or stagecoach. I was going between a seven and an eight. Um, I think I'll go with an eight on this one. There's parts of it that feel really slow to me, and I was getting a little bit sleepy. <laughs> Maybe I'm not getting enough sleep, but I just the the pace of it, you definitely have to prepare yourself. It's it's not it's not fast paced, but it it builds up a lot of suspense and kind of tension slowly. So shall we? Should our final answer be seven, or should it be eight? Uh, I'm going to go with eight on this one because that gives me some. Because now I know what I'm going to uh, give them. Yeah, it, it definitely. Well, this, this is a good segue to them. Which also uh, came out one year after it came from outer space, and I'm guessing that uh, Warner Brothers that that uh, made this film probably realized, hey, that, you know, there's a gold mine here for these kinds of films, so let's get busy and make several of them. And so they did. So them. Another one set in the desert. So I think that's the tie between these two movies. They're both set out in the in the desert for the most part. What what I also like about them is it ends 
in the storm sewers of Los Angeles, all the uh, concrete storm sewers that were built to control flooding on along the Los Angeles River. Do you know when those were built? Well, I think they they kind of were created over a long period of time, starting like in 1940, 41, something like that. And probably even today, they're, they're probably still changing them. But I would guess they 20 years from 41 to 61, something like that. And and this film came out. They look they look kind of new to me. The the storm. Yeah, they did. And they were still under construction because I uh, that's part of what happens near the end is that they are into a new part of the tunnel that hadn't been completed yet. I know. Well, what I noticed though is that even when they were in L.A., it it still felt like it, it still felt kind of deserted. You know, they they never really showed all the traffic or the big city. It was like the hospital, which was right next to the storm, you know, these storm runoffs and the, the river and then in the tunnels. Yeah, that was pretty much it. This is a uh, this is a movie that I do not remember ever seeing in 3D. I don't think it was done in 3D, do you? No, I don't think it was, no. I, I, love, I love the opening. And, and a favorite actor of mine, James Whitmore, is the uh, oh, he's so sheriff. good. Yeah. yeah, that that guy, I swear, was in the movie business for like sixty years. Probably was. He he won. I just looked him up here. He's won every he won every award uh, from the except for the Academy Award. He won a Tony, a Grammy, a Golden Globe, and an Emmy, and he was nominated twice for Academy Awards. Oh my gosh! And and a movie <laughs> that awesome. our listeners I think would really enjoy. A, a favorite of mine is one that he did. It's a uh, He's a single-person show called Give Him Hell Harry, made in 1975, where he, uh, it's a one-act film where he plays Harry Truman. And uh, I remember taking my mom and dad to it when we lived in Denver. My dad just couldn't rave enough about how well it was done. So Whitmore is a, is a wonderful, wonderful actor. We should do more of his films. Yeah, I, I like everything that I've seen him in. He's really good. And James Arness is in this too. Yes, he's <laughs> he he had recently done the thing from another world as the monster, yeah. and then went on to twenty years as Matt Dillon. This was like the golden age of uh, of these monster movies because like the Blob came out around this time, The Day the Earth Stood Still, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. I mean, there's just I I just imagine like. A few summers in a row where just there was a all these amazing films that were coming out. I do remember many Saturdays riding my bicycle down to one of the two theaters to watch a double feature, which would have included all of these different science fiction movies from 1951 to uh, probably 1957 or 58. Yeah, seemed like there were you know a lot of these now would be on the Sci-Fi Channel today. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think we're in kind of another golden age of cinema in terms of the kind of the superhero movies, if if that's your thing. There's certainly been a lot of those. Well, and we failed to mention Forbidden Planet. How could we forget oh, that? Oh, my gosh, yeah. One of the best movies oh, ever made, no kidding. in my opinion. So, um, Them, I, I love the... Uh, the uh, Post, what the poster I was looking at, I'll just read it here quickly. A horror horde of crawl and crush giants crawling out of the earth from mile-deep mile catacombs. Them. 
Yeah, this it's, <laughs> it's it's really. I mean, I I don't remember it being as well done as it actually is, but the way that it opens up with them finding that girl just wandering throughout the desert, and then they find that uh, camper that's all torn apart, and it's like, what the heck is going on? And if you didn't know the premise of the movie, it really. You don't even see the ants. I was just reading. You don't even see the ants until 28 minutes into the story. And every time so, the ants are close, you hear that sound that they make. Oh, that sound is, is oh. great. It's, <laughs> it's like when, you, when I first saw Jaws, the original Jaws, and that music is... Plane. You know something bad's going to happen. I always felt that in this movie, every time you'd hear the the uh, giant, and they were big ants, just about to come on the scene. What a lot! Of, what a well, lot of fun sounds. And uh, again, we've got another scientist kind of explorer adventure. He's a little bit older. The dad is, but then uh, what I really liked is that Joan Weldon plays Dr. Patricia Medford, and she gets right in there and is yes. exploring the tunnels and fighting the ants, and she's not going to take any crap from these guys that are telling her that she, she can't go down into the tunnel. You know, I love that. Oh, yes, she had many uh, sort of short verbal uh, interactions with James Arness's character who wanted to keep her from harm. She wanted nothing to do with that. What are you made up for? I'm going with you and Ben. Oh, no, you're not. Listen, Bob, someone with scientific knowledge has to go. My father's physically unable to do it. That leaves me. That leaves you here. Now, look, we don't know what we're going to find down there or what'll happen. And there's one thing for sure. It's no place for you or any other woman. I didn't ask her to go, Robert. She wanted to. And being a scientist myself, I couldn't very well forbid her. A trained observer has to go into the nest. What for? There are more important things to find out than whether all the ants are dead. You wouldn't know what to look for. Well, you tell us what to look, look for. Look, Bob, We're... there's no time to give you a fast course in insect pathology. So let's stop all the talk and get on with it. Okay, okay. Screw you, man. Like, I, I'm the scientist here. I'm the only one that knows what's going on and how to fight these things. I'm <laughs> yeah. going down there. Yeah, he says, well, I can learn it. And she, she basically laughed at him. And wasn't Edmund Gwynn wonderful as Her Dr. Harold Met Metford when he describes ants? He goes into all the detail of ants and, and, and has that uh, film that they're all watching. It was like, this is perfect, the way they set that up. Ants are the only creatures on Earth, other than man, who make war. They campaign. They are chronic aggressors. And they make slave laborers of the captives they don't kill. None of the ants previously seen by man were more than an inch in length, most considerably under that size. But even the most minute of them have an instinct and talent for industry, social organization, and savagery that makes man look feeble by comparison. Uh, how large were the ants you found? Oh, the smallest measured nine feet in body length. That, gentlemen, is why you are here. To consider this problem and I hope solve it because unless you solve it unless these queens are located and destroyed before they've established thriving colonies and can produce heaven alone knows how many more queen ants man as the dominant species of life on earth will probably be extinct within a year doctor 
I well, in the in the way that he yeah he describes them as being so brutal and violent, and then imagine now that they're like eight feet long, or even I mean they might have been. I'm sure they're even bigger than that. But there's this whole element of the story where they're racing to kill the queens because if they don't do it in time, civilization is going to come to an end. These ants are going to take over, you know. Yeah, and he's done he's done a uh, projection that the Earth would be devoid of humans in what a year. Yeah, and <laughs> that would get my attention. <laughs> it's like an apocalyptic movie. It's it's great. It really it really is. It's it's uh, it's a favorite. Just a couple of asides because we keep seeing people that cha- uh, showed up later in in major film roles. Leonard Nimoy is in this. He plays an uncredited part as the U.S. Army Staff Sergeant. When I saw him, I was like, is that Leonard Nimoy? And I was like, oh, it definitely is. It is, yeah. it is. And, and another one, uh, Fess Parker plays the, uh, let's see, let me find it here. Fess Parker plays the inmate in the mental ward at the Texas hospital. And oh, yeah. Walt, Dis- Walt Disney saw this film because somebody had said that James Arness should play the role of Davy Crockett in the Disney television shows. But when, mm-hmm. he saw, when Disney saw Fess Parker, he said, no, that's the guy I want. So that's that's how Fess Parker got the Davy Crockett role. Oh wow, cool! <laughs> and John Wayne, of course, recommended Arness for the Gunsmoke role, which he did right. for twenty years. My goodness sakes! So there's a lot, and there are a lot of other people in this, uh, in kind of un, uncredited roles or small parts that went on to big careers. Yeah, I, th- I was trying to think about why this movie is so engaging and fun to watch versus like hokey and i think it could have been really hokey with the giant ants even though i think the giant ants are really well done um they they really spent time to build out the characters and you started oh, to really care about the characters and i think that's why sure. it's so fun to watch because you really care about oh my gosh are they going to make it are they going to get the ants you know are they going to save the world well it, it also showed the professionalism of the director gordon douglas Mr. Douglas was in films from 1935 to 1977, and just a few of those that he made, and he was all over the place. He did They Call Me Mr. Tibbs with Sidney Poitier in 1970, In Like Flint with James Coburn, 1967, and he worked, he worked for every studio. I was looking. He, I don't think he worked for, I don't think he missed working for any studio except perhaps MGM. I mean, really, he really... He put this thing together, and I imagine it was a small budget. I don't know that, but uh, it's so it's so engaging to me. I I could watch it every week. I know here at home I was watching it, and Nancy's like, "Oh no, it's not Red River, is it? <laughs> or or Planned Night from Outer Space? Oh no, this is this is a classic. This is really a, a classic. Yeah, even the ants look real." The ants were really well done, and there was quite a few of them. When they get to the end, and there's that nest. Yes, the, yeah, and, down in the and, storm sewers, yeah. And they've got them kind of cornered, and then they're they're. I think it's James Arness is like, okay, we got them now. Can we can we light them all on fire? And they had to wait for uh, Doctor Medford to come down and confirm that they got all the queens. They didn't want to let any of them get away. And and our hero, James Whitmore, saved those two boys from the ants, but at the loss of his life. The perfect I was ending. surprised that he died. Yeah, that was that was a great 
twist that I did not expect. It's been so long since I watched this, I'd forgotten most of the plot. So, Wasn't it fun when, <laughs> I guess it wasn't fun for the people on the ship, but when the uh, the flying ants attacked those people in the uh, uh, in the ocean on that ship, and you, <laughs> yeah. you see it going on, and oh my goodness sakes, it's like wow. And then they they're like, well, that ship isn't going to be coming back into port. We're going to sink it. So they they, they just sunk the ship because they were like, no, we can't let these ants get back to uh, the mainland. <laughs> no, it's, it's, <laughs> and, and, and the very first uh, coroner's report on on. Uh, Johnson's death. I think he was the uh, one of the first deaths. The coroner says Johnson died of a broken neck, a broken back, a skull fracture, a crashed abdomen, and enough fulmic acid in his body to kill twenty men. And everybody, <laughs> everybody is puzzled by that. Like, how can that be? It's time for the expert to fly in, doctor. The doctors Medford and Medford. Oh, I love this movie. I really do. Uh, yeah, it's really good. So what was your rating for this one? A 10. A 10? Wow. Yeah, yeah Okay. Right, right, right <laughs> up there. I know. People are going to think I've lost my mind. Right up oh there with gosh. Double Indemnity and Stagecoach and Singing in the Rain. But oh, what, what can I say? I, I love it. I I have no regrets. I'm, I'm not looking back. And nor oh, am I changing uh, my score. <laughs> There's no instant replay here. No, no, you you called it. You said ten. So oh, you're sticking with it. Well, how, I, how about oh, yours? Oh man, you kind of swung me around. I I was gonna give it an eight, but I think I'll go a little bit higher with a nine. I I really enjoyed this movie. It was a lot of fun. Uh, it has some of the same elements of it came from outer space with with just a great story <laughs> and this desert setting and it's beautifully shot. Uh, but it's just goofy and exciting and terrifying and all the all the fun things that you want from a movie. It's so. everything that a 13-year-old boy in Lewistown, Montana would want to see, including the opening title card, which is in color. Yeah, Remember that? interesting. Yeah, it was, it was in color. red and they blue. They colored that. I'd forgotten yeah. that. And then one other little snippet here, the sounds of the giant ants emit. emit the sounds of the giant ants emitting i'll get this right you may have to edit this <laughs> the sounds the giant ants emit in the film were the calls of bird voiced fr- tree frogs mixed in with the calls of a wood thrush hooded warbler and red-bellied woodpecker as it was recorded on indian island georgia in april of 1947 oh my gosh that's awesome that's awesome <laughs> but you didn't know that <laughs> i couldn't even read that it had so many things on it so yeah i i would heartily recommend this film to anyone who has not seen it or who has only seen it 22 times like me <laughs> oh. oh man that was fun that th- those are great I, yeah <laughs> I bet I surprised you with my 10. Yeah, I was not expecting a 10 on, on that one from you. But yeah, it makes sense. It makes sense. Oh, boy. Well, I I, I think we should do Danny Kaye. Uh, the Danny Kaye movie. Oh, what is the name? Oh. Just, oh, goodness, goodness, goodness. Yeah, you mentioned that last yeah, time. Yeah, and I just um, forgot the name of it. Not the student prince. Um, oh, shoot. Well, let's look it up on IMDb here. 
it's the best movie he made, and I think it's one of the funniest movies ever made. And as soon as you say the name, I'm going to go, oh, my gosh, how could I forget that? The Court Jester? The Court Jester. Oh, how could I forget yeah. that? Yes. That's a what? <laughs> I'm laughing now. Uh, there's some scenes in that that are really memorable that have been replicated many, many times over. And Danny Kay is just a delight. How about that one? Oh, okay. That sounds good. I, Basil Rathbone's in it. Angela Lansbury. Oh, yeah. oh and, that's right. That's right. Glennis Johns. I won't reveal my rating on it until we actually do the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't spoil it. No, no spoilers. No spoilers. <laughs> Hi, this is Matt. Bob and I got so excited by his 10 rating of them that we completely forgot to do our outro. So thanks for listening, everybody. This was Matt from Seattle, and Bob was coming to you from Los Angeles. And we'll see you next time for Danny Kay in The Court Jester. Is this it, Doctor? They're new princesses. New queens. Yes, this is the egg chamber. The same as we found in New Mexico. Are we too late? Fortunately, we were in time. I'm certain no new queens have escaped from this nest. The job will be done when these are destroyed. Okay, burn him up. Pat, if these monsters get started as a result of the first atomic bomb in 1945, what about all the others that have been exploded since then? I don't know. Nobody knows, Robert. When man entered the atomic age, he opened a door into a new world. What we'll eventually find in that new world Nobody can predict.